It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you. Friday, June 9th, 2023. We will start in Eastern Europe. We will talk Ukraine. We will talk Poland. And then we will go to the Middle East and uh, perhaps end up on the 19th hole. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> um, Sam, I uh, I know we don't do restaurant reviews on this podcast. Uh, you and I are both Angelinos. And I was struck by an economic reality. You may recall when you first moved here, there was a venerable British style pub called the coach and horses, not far from where you live on sunset. That's right. Yes. I remember um, favorite hangout of Richard Burton, Peter O'Toole. It was uh, a place where you could drink Guinness pints of Guinness for about $5 as I recall. And I did often. Um, it is now a place not called the coach and horses. It is just called the horses and you can have a Caesar salad for $22 and a glass of Nebbiolo for $22 before tax and tip. They've added a skylight, but it's just the same British pub interior with nicer tablecloths. And I don't know why it struck me so deeply, but it just seemed like a metaphor for so much of our economy. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's here in Los Angeles. I don't know that it's yes. really relevant to, to a lot of other places, frankly. It's right. a big it's a big city in a big country. I don't know. I just wanted to share that. Uh the food was great. I'm sure it better be. Okay. Ukraine. We talked Ukraine last week. Uh let's follow up on that. Yeah, so I I mean hopefully we won't spend a lot of time on this because we we our whole program last week was about Ukraine. So and but there's things that are happening now that uh touch on the topics we were discussing last week. Uh, for example, it seems as though the spring counteroffensive is on. That's what the commentators all seem to be saying. Even though uh, Ukraine is kind of trying to say it's not. Yeah, but for instance, I saw a uh, Ukrainian parliamentarian on television whom I've seen many times during the war. Her name is uh, Ina Sovson. And uh, she said, the first rule of counteroffensive is you don't talk about counteroffensive. Right. Uh, Makes sense. Yes. And of, of course. Right. Uh, and, you know, this has been, as all the commentators say, widely anticipated. Uh, and but of course, the other big story is the destruction of the Kahovka Dam uh, just north or northeast of Kherson. And of course, the Ukrainians and the Russians are pointing fingers at each other about this. Uh, mind you, it could have just been an incredibly stupid accident uh, because uh, apparently the Russians uh, who could have controlled the dam for uh, upwards of, well, at least going back to last year, uh, have been letting too much water accumulate behind the dam. So the, the dam simply could have failed, and in which case that's on the Russians since they- For mismanaging it. Yes, exactly. And by the way, even if the Ukrainians destroyed it, which I highly doubt, uh, none of this would have happened if if Russia hadn't invaded. So, and you know, any of these things ultimately are the responsibility of the Russians. The Yale historian Timothy Snyder, whom we've discussed on this program before, friend of the program. Yeah, well, you know, he's not. A, I, you know, normally 
spiritually a friend of the program. Yeah, reserve that title for someone who's appeared on the show, and uh, Dr. Snyder has not done so, I should point out. But he, uh, I think, tweeted or something, issued a statement of some sort this week saying, listen, when the media, I'm paraphrasing here, obviously, when the media comes out and says, Ukraine says this about the dam and Russia says that about the dam, one of these parties has lied over and over and over again about what's going on during the war. And the other party, if they're responsible for something, will generally issue what we you know, have for decades called a non-denial denial, right? Uh, and so we're not talking about two parties of equal credibility here. Uh, so I'm assuming that the Russians either destroyed it on purpose or through negligence. Uh, but my money's on negligence, Sam. Well, you know, but we'll, we may never know, frankly. Right. Right. Uh, but last week we were discussing how the Ukrainians are acquiring F-16 fighters uh, about to stage their counteroffensive, uh, launching board uh, attacks across the border into Russia itself. And that even though you and I are both sympathetic towards the Ukrainians and not at all towards the Russians, the Russians have a legitimate case to say that this is an escalation of the conflict. So it's possible that the, the Russian destruction of the dam is a counter escalation. Uh, and if so, it would, I mean, I think it's difficult to grasp the scale of this one event in the war, which I I hope actually will go down as one of the most large-scale events of the war on the whole, right? Uh, because if there's a lot of other things that happen on this scale, it's going to be bad. It's horrible, right? I mean, the World Health Organization came out yesterday and said that there could be a cholera outbreak as a result of the destruction of the dam. There could be floating landmines, uh, and uh, there a lot of the land that has been flooded is... Uh, some of the agricultural land of Ukraine. So this could exacerbate the world food crisis that has been one of the effects of this war. Uh, and I can't help but thinking back to the beginning of the war when the Russians seemed to believe that they were just going to march right into Kiev and it would be over in several days. And because that didn't happen, a lot of their vehicles got bogged down or were at least in danger of being bogged down in the mud resulting from the spring thaw, which happens every year in Ukraine. Well, blood equals mud, right? So if you think the Ukrainians are about to try and take back this one patch of land, you could do a lot worse than flooding it. And as we were discussing last week, just part of the overall modus operandi of the Russian way of war in this conflict is to make sure that anything Ukraine does get back is not in the shape that it was when the Russians took it to begin with. It's terrible because enough of this Russian invasion is a slightly to somewhat evocative of World War One, given the stalemate and yes. things like trench warfare and kind of static lines That's of battle. Now we've I mean, got flooding, just like they had in the low countries on the right. Western and, Front. And it's, and it's muck and death. And like, exactly. it's terrible. And I, But I think that's the most important aspect of this story about the dam. And what we were talking about last week about the New Yorker story reporting from the trenches and how little reporting we've seen 
of that kind. And people like us, and we should admit it, right? People in the media, we tend to focus on the sort of geopolitical big picture type of, and those things are important. It's not that we shouldn't talk about them, but something on this, and and of course, disease is always an important part of war. It happens in every major war, right? And we should remember that also. Uh, But our focus on sort of geopolitical aspects of this tends to obscure the just the basic reality is that the grim war, meat hook meat grinder yeah war is about warfare. suffering right and it's terrible death, yeah. right and uh i think you're right I, one of the reasons i think the media you know and i i, I don't want to be unfair about this but they love this war right uh because it is world war 1/2 right this is your grandfather's war with clear right? good guys and bad guys so you've got yeah, the- it's something we can understand it's in right. europe it's not in you know some place where white people don't live right. right uh it's about democracy right uh and uh there will be a lot of good movies made about this war exactly and i don't mean to be cynical but it's just the truth but it's important to have if we're going to have a war, we should have the reality of it thrown in our face repeatedly. We would prefer that this had never happened, but we should be very clear about what actually is happening. And that's really the only point I wanted to make in general about Ukraine today. Uh, just that the scale of it uh, is manageable for the, for the media to report on. It's not something like climate change. Right. But uh, something like this is likely to happen again. For instance, one of the results of this is is that the uh, the uh, IAEA, that is the uh, International Atomic Energy Association, believes that the, the water in the reservoir behind the dam, which is being drained away, will leave not an uh, insufficient amount of water to cool the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh so that's you know, suboptimal. Yeah, there are there. Hopefully there is something that can be done about that. Uh, but this is a very serious matter. And it's something I mean, obviously, John, we're going to have to keep talking about Ukraine on this podcast probably more often than we would have liked to. There's no way this war is going to end before 2025. Right. The Russians. I think that's right. Uh, the Russia. Vladimir Putin will do everything in his power to see if he can't get somebody other than Joe Biden to deal with on the United States I, side. I think right? that's right. And I, I think that lends credence to the idea that the Russians might have destroyed the dam because this will slow, slow things down. The yeah. offensive, right. No matter what happens. And I, this is not a U.S. political podcast, but I do want to point out that our friends on the Bulwark highlighted that a couple of notable non-Donald Trump GOP presidential hopefuls took much more hawkish stances against the Russian invasion of Ukraine this past week. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting change within uh, kind of an isolationist Republican Party. So maybe there is something of a return to uh, kind of consensus uh, with regard to foreign policy in the United States, which matters for the world, frankly. Well, I, I mean, you might be right about that. I hope we don't ever find out, actually. Right? And, in <laughs> right, other words, of course. Uh, it's possible that this is part of uh, Trump's legacy that will prove less durable than others in the inside of the Republican Party. Again, 
you know, I know exactly who I'm going to be voting for next year. So, you know, my, my it doesn't my matter preference. if Nikki Haley thinks that we should continue the war to you. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, my preference would be that that we just don't find out, you know, it, that we don't have a Republican president next year. That's all. But I did, I did, I did think it was interesting. And I guess isolationism has never been a good idea for the United States. And so I, I did want to highlight that, you know, green shoots, maybe. Some Possibly. Yeah, we'll see. To Poland? Sure. To Poland. Okay. It's an interesting story. Poland is a country that is very important, actually. It has been for a very Forever. long time. And, and one that we have not talked about on this podcast thus far. All right. And- Poland is 40 million people. Yes. And it sits between Russia and Germany. That's right. Which yes. is the hot seat of hot seats since the dawn of the 20th century and the okay, industrial well, now, age. T- technically, the only reason that shares a border with Russia is because of the Russian exclave territory of Kaliningrad. Whatever. Kaliningrad. It's close enough for Russians to get there, even without yes, Kaliningrad. That is Russian territory. They do yeah. have a border with Kaliningrad. That's true. But it's not like, you know, uh, they share a long border with Russia, probably as they did in the old days. They share a border with Ukraine. Sure. And as we know, the Russians are on the other side of Ukraine. Yes. And they've been a staunch supporter of Ukraine since the beginning of the war. They've make sense. Yes. They've brought in many refugees. They have been um, among the loudest uh, call issued some of the loudest calls for a greater degree of uh, weaponry and more advanced weaponry to be provided to Ukraine. Uh, again, just a little zoom out here on Poland. So 40 million people. It's right there. Germany to its west. Russia, Ukraine, Russia to its Belarus, east. Belarus, yes. Belarus, right. Uh, when the Iron Curtain fell in 1989, Poland was kind of one of the great examples of democratic triumph. Um, yes, if and I re- had, had been. I mean, Poland played pivotal roles in both the Second World War and the Cold War. Right. Uh, and uh, that's part of their uh, sort of tradition of national pride. Uh, however, had it not been for the war in Ukraine, we would today be very comfortable slotting Poland in with countries such as Hungary. Yes. Uh, Turkey, Italy, in which democratic norms are in the process of not just eroding, but in fact, actively being dismantled by a right-wing nationalist populist government who somehow, in however, is still highly anti-Russian. And I think that's an interesting difference between them and, for instance, Hungary, which is basically openly pro-Russian, even though they're a NATO member and an EU member, just like Poland, and a formerly yeah. communist nation, just like Poland. Right. I mean, Poland is, um, yeah, if it weren't for the war in Ukraine, we would probably be critiquing their uh, anti-gay laws and, and all, all kinds of things, right? Well, not just that, but they're, they're politicizing their uh, judiciary much lo- uh, along the same lines as uh, Israel, which we talked about a few right. weeks ago, right? They're, they're trying to uh, make the judiciary more responsive to the elected political uh, leadership. Uh, they uh, are have this new law in which there are, I guess there's a new, new investigative panel that's looking into Russian interference in and their this, elections. Right? This of is course, why we're talking about Poland. This is yeah. the story now. 
Yes. And they have elections coming up this year in so, October, I believe. So basically, the Polans, the Polish are saying uh, there's a bill, as you say, to investigate Russian influence in their election. And one party says this is a real big problem. And the other party says this is a witch hunt. Sound familiar? Yes, except that it's the right wing nationalist populist party that is accusing the Western oriented liberal party of being of accepting Russian hell. So it's kind of a reversal Sure. of our situation in terms of the, the political spectrum. Uh, and the civic platform party, which is the opposition party, they're crying foul. They're saying, you're just doing this for electoral gain in the elections coming up this fall. Uh, and the conservative party, the law and justice party uh, is... Boy, is that on the nose? Yeah. And they're they're the ones mounting this uh this campaign apparently well i think geography tells a bit of this story right if you're going to be a polish nationalist and really mean it you're going to be suspicious of the russians yeah you can't be pro-russian that's exactly right it's not like a u.s nationalist or a hungarian nationalist but why why can a hungarian nationalist be pro-russian well i guess they're right there maybe because they i'll tell you what because they have never resisted it like Poland has, right? I think that's right. Yeah, I, I th- in the modern age, I don't, I don't yeah. know. I'm not a Hungarian history expert. There's, I think, part of it is just because of. Uh, we should point out because Hungary's right there next to Russia too. That's right. You know, uh, and but uh, Poland has just been in the bullseye. Like anytime there's a belligerent party, a belligerent state in the in the modern world, the industrial modern age, they're trying to grab Poland. Yes, that's right. And I think uh, a large part of it has to do with the history that we were just talking about. Even right? before that, didn't Napoleon go there, too? He, he must have. Just yeah. Since yeah. He invaded like they're Russia. always you on the go, hot seat. You, you've got to go through. You can't get there from here without going through Poland. Right. Uh, I think that because, first of all, Poland is far and away the largest, both geographically and in terms of population, of the formerly communist nations that joined the European Union starting about 20 years ago. It's much larger than Hungary, right? Probably twice as large. Uh, 40 million people. That's right. And uh, it was the joint invasion of Poland between Nazi Germany and and Stalin-Soviet Union, who were then non-aggressors towards each other, uh, that started the actual Second World War. Right. Britain, the UK, uh, guaranteed... Polish, yeah, and France, right? The Allies guaranteed Polish sovereignty. Yeah, and that way, when the Nazis invaded, that meant they were at war. Uh, and then, of course, after the Russians, after the Germans stabbed the Russians in the back and the Russians switched to the Allied side, they were the ones who mar- who marched into Berlin at the end when Hitler put the gun in his mouth in the bunker, right? It wasn't the Western Allies, it was the Red Army. Who came uh, through Poland? Who and they had to, and right. that was a long trip. All right, they, they didn't. They, you know, they didn't just go right through. Poland is a big country. It takes a lot to get through there uh, when you're, you know, fighting the Nazi army. And again, so, we should we should point out that the concentration camps were mostly in Poland, and right. the Soviet army suffered more than any army in the history of the world to that's take right. that territory back and eventually defeat 
the Germans. Among other places. But yeah, that that was by far the largest chunk. Uh, and so Poland's in the hot Poland's right there, man. They're yes, in the hot and, seat. And then, as we will recall, during and I'm sure many of our listeners know this, during the Cold War, first there was an anti-Soviet uprising in Hungary in 1956. The Soviets brutally crushed it. Yeah, tanks then, in the streets. Yeah. Yes. Then they, they yeah they sent in the tanks. Then there was a in 1968 there was a similar sort of uprising in Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia uh, or what was then Czechoslovakia, and the Soviets brutally crushed it, sent in the tanks. Uh, at the same time, actually, there were solidarity protests in Poland, uh, and the Soviets didn't send in the tanks. Uh, and I think it's mainly just because, for instance, if you're in a country as large as Poland, first of all, it's difficult for a street protest movement to actually gain control of the country just because it's so large. It's yeah. Right. And if you're the Soviets, sending in the tanks is a much bigger undertaking than it is sending them into Hungary or Czechoslovakia. It's something you really it would be a large campaign. Uh, to set, to actually try to take control of a piece of territory that big. They'd done it before, but it was no fun whatsoever. So this, simply the size of Poland might have sort of tamped things down, right? It kept the protest movement from, you know, being as successful it might, as it might otherwise have been, and it also kept the Soviets from sending in. And this is just speculation on my part. Mind sure. This is something that I'm making up out of whole cloth right here in front of you and our listeners. Uh, but I think that there's there's something to this talking. The effect of that, however, was that the dis the dissident movement in Poland was never crushed. Right. It made it maintained itself there mainly in. uh the form of the labor trade union and the um, the labor umbrella group, the Solidarity Movement, which eventually ended up under the leadership of Lech Walesa, who became the first post-Soviet president of Poland years later. And this is why Poland was so primed for democracy immediately at the fall of the Iron Curtain. In, indeed. In part. And it was the durability of the dissident movement in Poland, some historians speculate, mind you, that uh, influenced uh, the Vatican in uh, electing the Polish Cardinal Karol Wojtyla to, be the, to become Pope John Paul at, towards the end of the 70s, which was a great soft power exercise that also helped dent the Iron Curtain in Poland. So... The interesting part about this to me Poland is, is that, just just to point out Poland's like 88% Catholic. Exactly. And also this is I think a very important difference between them and the Russians, right? Because of course the Catholic versus Orthodox conflict sure. long predates the establishment of either the Polish or the Russian nation, right? This is, you know, goes back thousands of years, right? So uh but the point I would like to make about you know, I don't want to get into this whole atavistic Sure. Uh, you know, ancient history stuff. The point I would make about contemporary Polish politics is that the this 
narrative of national pride of resistance to communism is a bipartisan narrative. Both sides, both the Civic Platform Party and the Law and Justice Party take part in this same uh, national pride. And their political dispute, to a certain extent, is just a dispute over who is the legitimate heir of that tradition, right? Uh, For instance, law and justice would say, we stood up to the communists because they tried to crush our religion, right? Uh, Which is different from their religion, by the way, right? Uh, Whereas civic platform would say something like, uh, we stood up to the communists because they tried to crush our democratic freedoms, Right. Uh, But no matter who you are in Poland, you can feel proud of of having resisted the Russians. So this is why you can't be a pro-Russian in Poland, basically. And and again, to zoom it out even larger, like Poland, like resisted the Nazis, resisted the communists. Like they exactly like they they took on like with no reservation, took on the biggest bad guys of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, and and suffered horrifically for it. And so you can understand why war in Ukraine, we know what side we're on, right? Yep. Not, we don't have to think about it for one second. But we'll have to see how this pans out of the election. The candidate for civic platform, that is the opposition party, is Donald Tusk, who was already their prime minister before law and justice won the election in 2015. And they're coming to the end of their second term in power now. And so it's sort of like sort of like Joe Biden, frankly, right? Just like, really, this is the best guy you got is the guy who used to be in power. You know, there's no other younger person in your party that you could run against uh, uh, against the law and justice party. We'll see how it works out. Tusk also uh, left the prime ministership to become the president of the the Council of Europe, uh, which is an EU uh, body that. It's sort of like the Senate, kind of anyway, but basically it's all the heads of, of government. It's like the Senate of the EU, kind of. Kind of, yeah. I mean, you know, they don't actually legislate, right? But it's, you know, it's Olaf Scholz and Macron and Georgia Maloney and, you know. They have uh, input on treaties and agreements yeah, in a senatorial like, look, way. I mean, you know, they sort of advise the parliament and say, you know, Olaf probably can't get this done or, you know, it's a, right. you know, uh, if you're planning on passing a law, you know, we we might have something to say about that. Right. They don't have any much actual power. Right. Uh, Advice but, and consent. Yeah. But the point is that uh, law and justice pointed their finger at, at Tusk and said, look, Donald Tusk doesn't care about you. He just used the prime ministership to become a springboard to go hang around with his friends in Brussels. Right. Right. Uh, He's and, not a real bull. Yeah, he's an internationalist. He's an international. He's a globalist, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And by the way, yeah, he is actually yeah. right. Uh, and uh, so that's red that, meat for the nationalist party. Yeah, for that matter, uh, the the uh, civic platform foreign minister when they were in government uh, is uh, was Radoslav Sikorsky, who is married to uh, the famous American columnist Ann Applebaum. Right. So law and justice is you know, is. You know, these guys are literally in bed with the Western media. <laughs> these these, these right. scripts kind of write themselves, right? right? Uh, so, I you know, I don't know anywhere near enough about domestic Polish politics to be able to say how this is going to work out. But again, Polish Poland is a country of great consequence. So 
the outcome of this election is something that uh, I think our listeners are going to want to pay attention to as it draws nearer. And it's let's face it, October isn't that far away. It is kind of surprised we haven't talked about Poland more on this podcast. Well, uh, I, you I'm know, just do, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's, we haven't been doing it that long. And there's been plenty to talk about, fortunately or unfortunately, as some say. It'll, it, I, I, I assume it will not be the last time. No. I, well, we'll need to talk about it when the election rolls around. Certainly. Are we playing through to the Saudi the back nine, sure. Sorry, I'm going to use all the golf. So, no, I mean, you know what, John? Listen, I mean, Sam, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm not a golfer. Me either. Yeah. my I was raised in the sport. My dad still golfs. He's 70, 77 years old. I work in sports journalism. I'm a broadcaster. I've never covered golf beyond just in a generalist kind of anchoring the sports news and reporting on golf results and, you know, big stories. So I have, you know. I have a sporting knowledge of the sport, but I'm not a golf enthusiast. And this is not like in my wheelhouse as a journalist. However, however, this is terrible and I'm outraged. Yeah. Okay, fine. But golf is more popular in the United States than I even realized. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes. But, you know, we should probably move along to to talk about what. I mean, I don't have metrics on that, but yes, it's very popular. Now, Josh, you know much more about sports than I do. Sure. Okay. Uh, And. So I'm going to uh, relax my sort of Bryant-esque ball hogging. And- no, it's fine. I, I don't have a lot to offer on it. Okay, well, all right, fine then. In the parlance... I'm of- happy to be the Lamar Odom to your Kobe Bryant. <laughs> In, okay, I don't even know what that means. In the parlance of the financial world, uh, the word merger is often followed by the word acquisition. I'm glad you focused on this because already the PGA is like, it's not a merger. It's not a merger. It's not a merger. Okay. They're backtracking. Right. I mean, what is it? I mean, uh, the the point is that I think a lot of uh, analysts in finance and journalists in finance will basically openly admit that there are very few actual mergers anymore. Right. right? It's an acquisition. They're, They're mainly just acquisitions. Right. And, we people still use the term merger to allow the acquired company to save face on some level. So right? we need to say what's going on here. The Saudi public investment fund started a rival golf tour a couple of years ago and threw unbelievable amounts of money at big name golfers on the PGA tour, the established professional tour. And Plenty of PGA golfers were like, you can't take their money. This is blood money. They execute journalists. And the PGA commissioner said he would do everything he could to make sure that any player that left the PGA for the LIV live tour run by the Saudi monetary fund or the Saudi public investment fund. That's what it's called. These are people that cut up journalists with bone saws and harbored the terrorists that attacked the United States on 9-11. I mean, the, the Saudi government, you know is the Saudi government, and we don't need to to relitigate that right now. But anyway, the PGA said, no, this is terrible. The Live Tour was like, we're just breaking up the monopoly, man. Right? Yes, they filed and, antitrust yeah. actions against the PGA. The, the, the money they threw at, like, Phil Mickelson and Brooks Kepka, right? Big names on the tour. It was just... Nine figures. Just astronomical. And from a labor perspective... There was free agency in professional golf. Yes. Right. Um, Lee Steinberg, 
who is a prominent sports agent, has commented on this, that now this brief, wonderful period of free agency for golfers is over because the PGA and the Live Tour have announced they have reached an agreement, although they've not signed it or confirmed it, but they have reached an agreement that they are saying is not a merger. They are going to combine uh, into some commercial entity that the PGA says will not actually be the PGA. It's going to be like some separate commercial entity. Along with DP World, by the way. Right, which which is the PGA internationally, right? Yes. DP World is uh, like, you know, what they call the Open Championship in the UK, which Americans call the British Open. Yeah, fine, whatever you say. You know, but there there are prominent international tournaments that the PGA is affiliated with, but okay, the PGA but, but, is basically John, let's, let's just cut to the chase. The here. point is the PGA is taking the blood money now after ha- being principled for a couple of years. Okay. So if we look at this from the point of view of mergers versus acquisitions, mind you, this is the PGA is acquiring the Saudi public investment fund cash to run their business. Okay. But isn't basically the government of Saudi Arabia buying the entire sport of golf? I mean, how is it not that? If if it's not, you'd have to explain that to me. Okay, so Rory McIlroy, the uh, Northern Irish four-time major champion, yes, uh, who's yeah. one of the most uh, successful golf- golfers post-Tiger Woods, criticized the Live Tour and made comments um, – recently when he was told about the agreement and he says he still hates the well, live yes. tour. No, I saw his interview. Yeah. But he, he just said, look, it, there's at the end of the day, money talks and you'd rather have these people as a partner. If you're thinking about one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world, you would rather, would you rather have them as a partner or an enemy? So I don't know if they're buying the sport of golf, but they are. Because we can't, we can't know how despicable the decisions, the PGA tour leadership makes will be right we right who knows? Okay, yeah. maybe they'll just take the money and and operate golf as they are i i sincerely doubt that so All right. I, I i don't want to speculate on how despicable the pga's decision making will be going forward but yes there's now a tsunami of saudi cash operating within the existing infrastructure of the professional golf monopoly Okay, and it's it's not good now. But for instance, I've seen a number of commentators say that that the PGA at least likes to present itself as being owned by the players, right? Or you know, something like it, which is obviously crap, right? right? It's uh, owned by their corporate partners. <clears throat> all right, yeah. fine, because it's like the players didn't know anything about this. This was negotiated in secret. It was, uh, and. Uh, the head of Rory the, McElroy said he got a phone call at six thirty in the morning a couple of days ago. Yeah, the head of the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, a gentleman named Yasser Al Rumian, uh, is the also the chairman of Live Golf and will be the chairman of the combined entity. Uh, while uh, Jay Monahan of the P of the PGA will be the CEO. Monahan's uh, the current commissioner of the PGA. Yeah, and he uh, Rumian, that is, uh, is also. Uh, that he's the head of the fund, right? Of the of the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. He is said to be Muhammad bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's personal banker. He is also the chairman of the Newcastle Athletic team, the right. football team that is in Britain, the English Premier League. Yes, 
Now, one thing I would like to say about this, though, is that wasn't there a controversy a few years ago when I think one of the NBA owners spoke out against the Chinese government? It was not an NBA owner. It was an NBA general manager, Daryl Morey. General manager. Yeah. Uh, And had to be basically silenced. Reprimanded. Yeah. And uh and one had to of issue people, an apology. Yes, one of the people who 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 took part in this campaign to silence him was LeBron James. I do recall that. And so, okay, this is an order of magnitude, but the fact is, this is just the I think, and I think you would agree, uh, this is just sort of the scale of modern phenomena. Right? For instance, when in the twentieth, and also century, the scale of money in sport. Yes, but that's just that's part that of is it. a modern phenomenon, right? Uh, when in the 20th century, people very seldom talked about billionaires, right? Uh, because there weren't very many of them. The first them. one I ever heard of was Ross Perot. Okay, and but we talk about them every day now, and I think that's m- mainly what's going on here is that there's all you know, it's sort of like climate change, right? The scale of it is so large that these things it's inescapable. Are- that these things are going to happen that you wouldn't have expected before. One thing I would just add before we run out of time is that right before we came on today, I happened to watch yesterday's episode of the, the, the debate program on France 24, which was entirely about United States, Saudi relations. And it really, which I thought by, we were going to have more time to talk about. Yes. Yeah, but I, I would have hoped we, we would, but I would advise all of our listeners to go onto YouTube and watch, take the 45 minutes it really opened my eyes to some things about the U.S.-Saudi relationship that I did not understand. And I would have to revise some of the opinions that I've uh, espoused on this program, for instance, last week. Uh, Things are much more complicated, as it often works out, than people understand. Uh, But the point is that uh, this whole episode with golf is part of a general Saudi campaign to... uh, boost their geopolitical importance on the world stage. And they're very successful about that and to modernize their economy, which is something they need to do uh, in no matter how much disdain we might have for MBS. 